You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm your host, Jessica, and today we're bringing you an interview with our friend, Michael Horn. Michael spent the last five years leading the higher education consulting practice at Entangled Group. One of their early investments was Guild Education, a venture-backed startup leading the Education as a Benefit movement. In May, Entangled was acquired by Guild Education, and together they've launched Next Chapter, a new kind of outplacement service to help laid-off workers access the training and job opportunities they really need. Let's listen in as Michael talks to Tom about Guild in the next chapter. Michael Horn, welcome back to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's always uh, good to be with you, uh, and I'd, I'd say reassuring, actually, in these times uh, to, to, to be with you. Uh, Michael, have you tried to explain what's happening in America to your kids? My wife and I are talking a lot about how to have those conversations. We've started to broach it a little bit. You know, there, there's two levels of this, right? So with the COVID-19, and for those that don't know, my kids are five and two-thirds years old. That I have twin daughters. Um, so on, on, on the pandemic, you know, they I would say they have a reasonable understanding of what's going on. And we've talked about it, and it's obviously interrupted their relationships with their grandparents parents, their schools, and, 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 and so forth, um, and major questions for what it means for us next year with them, frankly. Um, more lately, with the, with the uh, you know, the anti-Black racism um, that has uh, been sparked, we're trying to figure out the right way to have the conversation, Tom. It's clear to me from the research that you need to be explicit about race with kids. They notice it. And if you don't fill that silence with uh, context and the importance of how to act, uh, you know, kids will fill that silence right in their own heads. And so you need to be very intentional about it, I think. Um, by the same token, we're trying to be age appropriate for five-year-olds. So we've, you know, some of the incidents around uh, Central Park and getting um, appropriate books and things like that seem like better entry points maybe for 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 our age children. And, and I guess the last thing I'd say is, you know, there's a lot of Black Lives Matter signs and people right talking about it popping up right now and so we are certainly uh uh speaking about the importance of that message right now we talked in the fall about your new book it's called choosing college how to make better learning decisions throughout your life that came out in uh 2019 which meant you were writing it in 2017 and 2018 um uh, if you wanted to what's the two minute 2020 postlude, um, yeah. you know, if updated advice given uh, the awful, bizarre circumstances that we're in. What what do you tell uh, a, a high school junior or senior now as they think about their education pathway? Well, I would say a major conclusion from the book was that a lot more students ought to be taking what we call gap years or what I've come to call discovery years where they discover really who they are and how they want to contribute in the world, which your next book, obviously, is squarely about this and how we should do a better job in K-12 on this topic. Um, but the I, I would say that's been reinforced, right? Because a lot of families now are opening their minds to the fact that uh, if they can't be on campus in the fall, they're not sure they want to pay an exorbitant right. 30, price, $50,000. Right. right. For and uh, what's been a really crappy online experience. Um, 
with schools that, let's be honest, right? A lot of the schools we're talking about uh, in terms of the more residential experience, their specialty has never been teaching and learning. And so now you're asking them to put what's not a great teaching and learning experience online in a distanced medium. Um, it's it's not a it's not a good recipe. And so we, it, I, a lot of families are obviously, and students are thinking about a gap year far more seriously than they otherwise would have. And I think that's a moment where, you know, the book speaks to people to push them even farther to say, how can you view this as not a year off, but a year on, a year to learn about who you are, a year to figure out how you can contribute. And honestly, especially given the spread of, of COVID-19 and relative risks uh, where youth are, are are less at risk in terms of getting very seriously ill, how can you be, uh, you know, use this as a crucible moment to really forge your character and leadership skills and, and, and be on the front lines to help your communities and help senior citizens and, and, and give them the support in healthcare and socially uh, that they need right now. And, and I think it's a tremendous opportunity if people can reframe it uh, as such. What's our friend Abby Falick, uh, Global Citizen uh, Year? What, what I, I saw you podcasted with her recently. What's her response been? Yeah, so you know, a lot of the curated gap year programs they're moving online, uh, and uh, Global Citizen Year has announced a partnership with the Minerva Project and their platform uh, to basically create a, uh, a set of a space, if you will, for people to have really important leadership conversations uh, in, in an incredibly active platform. So I think that they're, I view the partnership as not just sort of moving something online, which I think a lot of the gap year programs um, are doing and should be doing. And there's a lot of great ways to get experiences, valuable experiences and work experiences through Parker Dewey and Ripen and others online, right? Um, but what Global Citizen Year is doing is being super intentional about curating the space for reflection and curriculum, leadership curriculum, in essence, um, so that that uh, so that what they've always provided a leadership opportunity and an opportunity to understand one's purpose um, can be done really, re really thoughtfully, I think, and, and in a way that they may find that they take aspects of this and actually it ports over uh, to whenever they're back in person and, and sending people around the world that, that they actually use this platform, I think potentially, right, to continue to foster those opportunities for reflection and deep conversation. Thanks for that update. Um, uh, we appreciate your book, Choosing College, and I, I think uh, now more than ever, it's time to be really intentional about uh, your own uh, learning decisions. So uh, thanks for the update. Um, Michael, you spent the last five years uh, leading strategy for Entangled Solutions. Uh, can you remind us of what that uh, what that was? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the Entangled Group was an education venture studio with a simple hypothesis, which is that the world had shifted from an industrial economy to, you know, insert your name here, knowledge economy, for, uh, you know, fourth industrial wave, whatever you want to call it. And our education institutions simply had not kept up. And so we needed uh, an entity that could intentionally build and create uh, the set of for-profit and not-for-profit uh, education organizations that would help usher in uh, an an education ecosystem capable of supporting learners uh, and and uh, and institutions in, in, for this new world. And so we created companies, uh, but we also had Entangled Solutions uh, as part of that, which was a consulting firm uh, to support institutions uh, in their own transformation uh, journey. 
to better support learners in this in this world. Um, and uh, yeah, you know that's what Entangled uh, was, obviously, and, and uh, tremendously tremendously proud of the impact and, and a lot of what we created there. Well, one of the firms that you were an early investor in is called Guild uh, Education, um, and Guild a couple of weeks ago uh, last month acquired Entangled Solutions. Uh, remind us of what Guild Education is. Yeah, absolutely. It's probably one of the stranger uh, events, right, in, in education investing history, where the investor gets inquired by the investee, if you will. But uh, uh, Guild Education was set up uh, by uh, uh, Rachel Romer Carlson um, uh, to uh, effectively harness education benefits uh, in in employers to help bring frontline employees into middle skills jobs, and so. They're, in essence, a platform that helps to un- un- unlock uh, the education benefit dollars in Fortune 1000 companies uh, and direct those uh, uh, and, and work with the employees themselves to be able to choose from a set of learning providers, higher education institutions, uh, uh, in concert with their goals, and then provide a heck of a lot of coaching and mentorship and support so that those individuals really uh, can find purpose in what they choose and, and, and in fact, complete. It's been exciting to see the, uh, the, the growth of that company. I, I guess I think of them as the, uh, the, the, the founder um, and chief spreader of the idea of education as a, as a benefit, yeah. uh, both of providing access to and encouraging big companies to provide a partial or even full a subsidy for continued learning for their employees. Is that fair characterization? Yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that companies have had these education benefits available to employees for many, for you know, for a long time, but employees tended not to use them. And yeah. uh, in many cases, weren't aware or employers weren't as thoughtful about how they could uh, leverage them for their own strategic aims, right? In terms of upskilling their workforce, helping with retention and so forth. And so, uh, and, and universities and, and employers, they, they struggle to talk to each other that, you know, very different languages. It's not always clear how to work with each other. And it's complicated to use these dollars, uh, and figure out where you allocate them and direct them and pay and, and, and so forth yeah. on a, a marketplace of providers. So Guild has really unlocked, I would argue, a benefit that's been there, but in a much more intentional, purposeful way, uh, so that it, it it really produces a return on investment for both the employees and the employer. Uh, I just I want to celebrate the success of uh, Rachel Romer Carlson. It's just it's super exciting to see a young female uh, founder, um, incredibly so, achieve such success. Um, it's the idea of being an education uh, warrior and and creating access uh, to, to quality education is uh, is sort of in Rachel's DNA. Um, her her dad Chris, uh, who heads up university partnerships for the company, um, Chris and I were on the board of Colorado Children's Campaign uh, together thirty years ago, um, and I I just love Chris and have appreciated the many ways in his career that he has tried to expand access to high quality um, secondary and post-secondary education. And of course, Rachel's uh, grandfather uh, was Roy Romer, 
one of my first tasks as a board member at Colorado Children's Campaign was to go visit Governor Romer uh, and and talk about improving access to quality schools for kids in in Colorado. Uh, Ryan and I continued to meet on a regular basis when he became uh, the LAUSD uh, superintendent at the age of 71. Uh, so Rachel comes by it honestly. She has a, a family that's just uh, been in the fight for better education uh, for all kids for uh, for about 40 years. Yeah, that's exactly right. And if I remember correctly, also, you were at some of the uh, meetings that became the inception of Western Governors University, uh, which her grandfather, Roy, um, right. was, no, I, I was on the, Levin, uh, were, were I was on the founding right. board with, with Mike and, uh, Roy for Western Governors, which was really an early effort to extend access and to try to infuse some innovation, particularly competency-based learning in, into higher education. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, it's, I think, it's fair to say it's probably one of the most successful stories of disruptive innovation uh, in our sector in this country uh, that that you all seated there and continuing to grow extremely rapidly. And, you know, uh, uh, Rachel and Guild has built an engine that is now, you know, literally tens of thousands of, of uh, learners starting new classes each month um, and expanding access for, for 3 million working Americans at the moment through the through the programs that Guild has stood up with uh, a, a variety of really important employers from Walmart to Disney to Chipotle, Five Guys, et cetera. You know, these, these, are, these are places serving large numbers of, of, of Americans uh, who need to get more education and, and be directed into pathways that will, uh, you know, not just put them in next jobs, but honestly jobs that have real earning potential and pathways for upward mobility. Michael, uh, part of this combination, uh, this acquisition of, of Guild is, um, is the next chapter at Guild. There's actually a platform called Next Chapter. Can you describe what that's about? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, at Entangled, we were building um, a company basically looking at uh, the, the outplacement or outskilling uh, space, if you will, where companies uh, historically, when they shed employees, uh, there's a little bit of a, you know, maybe some resume uh, uh, training, maybe a, a counseling session or two if you're lucky and a little little bit of money and then you're sort of off your own uh, trying to find a new job and, and maybe there's some access to job boards. Uh, at Entangled, we realized, you know, there should be a much uh, more significant investment by employers in uh in, in really supporting people that they know will not have a long-term future. And in many cases, it's strategically so. Like the employers bring people in for short-term temporary jobs that are maybe heavy in manual labor, and they don't want them there forever. That's not that's not good for their workforces. They want to help them move into other pathways. And so we were starting to develop a solution to really uh, uh, help those individuals figure out you know, what pathways were out there and then provide them with education and training opportunities and allow the employers to offer a much more robust package uh, for those people that they would be laying off or letting go. And uh, Guild was incidentally coming to the same conclusion that this outskilling space was really important in developing their own uh, uh, product and offering. And as we were working 
in parallel and then together, we realized it would be better done together fully. And so that was one of the bases for the uh, acquisition, but uh, it ultimately uh, resulted in the launch of Next Chapter, which is this new type of outplacement solution uh, to help employers reskill and then upscale their furloughed and laid off workers and, and connect them with new opportunities in other sectors. And I'd say, you know, we started building this before there was a recession and pandemic. It really does feel like the perfect opportunity and need uh, for millions of people right now across the country as they've seen their jobs um, disappear so, so rapidly and really needing to move into places that are at less risk of automation and and the like. Uh, Michael, I, I just talked to Ryan Craig uh, last week. Um, I, I think of him as, as one of the most important post-secondary um, education investors in the world. And Agreed. Ryan just started Achieve Partners, uh, a new private equity firm to invest in what, what he describes as uh, intermediary organizations that do hiring and training. And he claims that these firms will be able to take the guesswork out of uh, career planning for individuals, be able to offer high quality um, learning opportunities, often free or debt free, and then reduce friction for hiring employees. I'm curious, what's your take on his new venture and how is that a, a different approach to the same set of problems that you're working on? Yeah, you know, I, I, I think it's going to be tremendously successful. I think it's a tremendously important set of insights Ryan has had there around not just reducing the education friction, but then the hiring friction allow, you know, the folks that he's investing in, right, essentially give a temporary job uh, to their students for some amount of time and then essentially allow employers to, in his words, try before you buy, right, and commit to uh, bringing on an employee with all the cost uh, that that can entail if you're, you know, if you make a bad hire, it's it's a really smart way to reduce risk uh, for for employers, and I, I think makes a heck of a lot of sense. I think of it as the front end of this, right? It's it's um, it's a really important way uh, to do last mile training and bring people. Um, uh, connect them in intentional ways, make sure that you know that they'll have a job and some security uh, when they graduate and they won't be in debt, uh, often pairs an income share agreement to finance the arrangement. And so I, I think it's tremendously smart. Um, and it's a piece of the puzzle in my mind. I, you know, I don't think any of these things is a, a complete solution by itself. And 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 I think there should be a, a plurality of options. I, I've come to believe, honestly, in the last uh, since, since choosing college, uh, even, even more deeply, you know, that the liberal arts are an important piece of this as well, right? It's not just going to be sort of very narrow job training that, that actually building the skills that a good liberal arts degree, much as the folks at Minerva are trying to build and so forth, uh, or, or our friends at Northeastern, you know, Joseph Ayun, the president there talks about the humanics, um, really developing this capacity for thinking critically, problem solving, collaborating and the like. Uh, as enduring sets of skills, um, I, I think it's tremendously important. So I, I, I don't think it's going to be any one of these solutions by itself. It's really the the uh, what America has always been good at is having a, a set of or a mosaic, if you will, of different solutions for different needs. And I, I think the thing about what Ryan's creating that'll be important is this 
the the learners before they jump into those programs being super clear is this the pathway and the on-ramp if you will uh, for me because it really matches my strengths my passions and so forth and making sure that there's a good uh, matching function not just on the back end but on the front end uh, to right. make sure that that we're, we're we're picking people who who know what they're getting into let me ask you a question about rural America I was uh, talking to some leaders from um, the the mountain west uh, states yesterday and it 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 strikes us that uh, post pandemic uh, there's going to be a lot more remote work um, in in tech America. Um, how might um, rural states help more people um, skill up to participate in the technology economy and maybe do it from their hometown? Uh, what, what kind of pathways do you see there for uh, rural America? Yeah, I mean, in many ways, I think this is going to breathe a second chance, right, of life into a lot of those towns that were dwindling and even potentially the colleges that were going to be shuttering uh, alongside of those uh, demographic challenges that many of these places were facing. Um, I, I think it's really a shot in the arm because all of a sudden cities don't look quite as desirable uh, as as they did. And, and uh, we know for a long time, students were, they were flocking to schools that were in cities, right? Like that was where the jobs were. We saw a migration from Silicon Valley into San Francisco for the jobs, uh, the activity, the connections, uh, you know, it was all about the city life. And there was a real drain, obviously, in, in, in these rural and exurban areas uh, and, and some communities that were really hurting, which I think explains some of our, our politics sometimes as well uh, at the moment. But the... Um, you know, I, th I think the opportunity, though, is that some of this now may reverse. And it's obviously a question of will, will that be durable? But I think for many, it will be because they're going to see that it's way more possible to do remote work than they ever thought possible. You, you, you just in, in some ways, it's way more efficient and, and, and productive, actually. Um, and, you know, that won't be true everywhere. But I think in many cases it will be. And so those states that I think are, are very intentional about creating partnerships, helping employers realize that there are great communities of potential employees for uh, remote work opportunities and, and intentionally uh, connecting and curating programs for them um, is an opportunity. And those may be, you know, the colleges and universities in their hometown. Oftentimes, I'm not sure it will be. It'll be online programs, right, that, that do whatever uh vertical really 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 well and I, i've long thought that a missing opportunity for cities towns states in particular has been standing up what, what i've called renewable learning funds essentially income share agreements uh but that sort of replace scholarship funds if you will so uh they 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 refresh themselves because as the individuals who get those uh, scholarships succeed, then they put a portion of the income that they receive back into the scholarship fund. And so it's a renewable learning fund as, a, as opposed to a traditional scholarship where you're constantly begging yeah, I love that uh, idea. for your next dollar. Um, and I, I think it's something that towns and cities uh, and foundations and you know that, that are deeply invested in these communities could be very thoughtful uh, about establishing similar to what San Diego has done, uh, which you're familiar with, with in the workforce partnership, um, to, to be super thoughtful about how do you create robust opportunities and pipeline for, for, uh, for individuals living in these places. 
Yeah, that's interesting. You know, Mike, uh, Michael, we've talked about um, micro schools, and I'm a big fan of uh, Teton Science School and their national network of place schools. These are, are rural micro mm -hmm. schools. You can think of a higher ed version of that, which could just be a almost an informal study group around a capability like edX or um, Udacity, where you've got three or four uh, peers that are um, working together on a uh, an inexpensive degree pathway uh, linked to a technology future. And so we, we may actually see a version of these higher ed uh, micro schools or maybe cooperative learning uh, pathways that could be quite right. uh, productive. Yeah, I think that's right. In the same way that it's not the case that, you know, Amazon Bonobos and Warby Parker have totally... Uh, you know, as they've disrupted, and that's very true at the moment, uh, you know, the, the brick and mortar retailers, right? They actually are, it's not the case that all retail has gone online. They're actually opening brick and mortar uh, uh, stores, not to have tons of inventory, but to provide experience and connection, right? And, and community and so forth. I think the same thing is probably more so true in higher ed, which is the need for these cooperatives as you just frame them, right? And, and these opportunities to come together as a community, uh, in person, where that makes sense, but with these low-cost online programs, really robust, and so it it actually it it raises a really interesting question for how the sector will unfold. Because historically, I felt like there's going to be a few national brands like Western Governors, Southern New Hampshire, Arizona State, right that that serve large swaths of the country, and then you probably have very regional specific schools that that. Uh, do really, really well being hyper-local and hyper-attuned to the needs of that particular cluster, if you will, of, of economic activity. But it's an interesting question if like Southern New Hampshire, just as use them as an example, gain continues to gain immense scale. The benefits of scale are that you can start to invest potentially um, in, 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 pro, in, in programs and clusters that maybe have the same job characteristics, if you will, right, but are distributed across geography. Uh, such that there's an attractive market there, and uh, and then essentially partner with these uh, on ground cooperatives of some sort to provide the community aspects that that would be too too small and too uh, resource intensive for for a place like a you know an online institution to support. Um, but but that could be deeply threatening, you know, to to uh, the the real local institutions. So I, I I'm not quite sure how this will play out, but I but I do see the benefits of scale accruing in more than just sort of a, a national play now, as as it may allow the nonprofits in particular to invest in sort of these. I'll, I'll call them niches, but they're like they're niches that transcend geographic bounds, if that makes sense. Uh, it's going to be interesting to watch. I was thinking of ASU Local uh, in California, uh, yeah, but you sure. can also think of ASU Local in a, you know, in a vacant retail store in a, you know, in a, a small uh, mountain town as well. So, I, I think we're going to see a lot of interesting formats and uh, partnerships in the next few years. I, I'm curious uh, if you've given any thought to entrepreneurship um, and what kind of advice you tell high school and college students about entrepreneurship. Uh, I think we've lost about 150,000 businesses in the last 90 days. And it looks to me like in a typical year, we might have a 600,000 startups or so. Um, let's, let's guess that that's 
only 400,000 this year, maybe 350,000. Um, yeah. Any thoughts on how we, and, and it turns out that entrepreneurship is quite important to economic recovery. So how might we encourage entrepreneurship and, and how does, how do you see that fitting in with any of the work that, uh, that you're thinking about at, at Guild now? Yeah, well, l let me talk about it outside of Guild for a moment, and then we can uh, map it back. But the, um, you know, I, from my standpoint, high school student, part of the high school curriculum, and, and you've written about this aspect, should have design thinking right at, at its core. And I would say entrepreneurship as well. I think that should be a piece of um, an experiential curriculum where students are getting the skills of what it means to uh uh, generate an idea, understand demand through, I, I would argue, a jobs-to-be-done lens, but um, and then really develop a solution and, and try to get it out in the wild. And those skill sets that you get from doing it, even if you don't end up starting something, will be tremendously valuable in whatever uh, line of work or contribution you choose to make and, and really understanding how you pull together a set of activities, right, to create value uh, for individuals in society and, and recognize, I think, the inherent um, nobleness, if you will, of entrepreneurship in terms of delivering value to people, uh, employing people and so forth. And so I, I think it's a tremendously important, I would argue, it should be an important part of, of, of the curriculum in ways that it's not. People should be getting experience around it. I, I, I'd go a step further, I think, and say, you know, it's it's not just the high schoolers that need to be think, thoughtful about this. I, you know, Clay Christensen, before he um, passed away, the last several years uh, of, of his sort of research was deeply worried about what he called the capitalist dilemma, that, that in his mind, the venture capital firms uh, and other sources of finance in the economy were so interested in short-term return uh, in, a, in a way to uh, mitigate risk that we actually were not investing in what he would call the market creating innovations, uh, you know, true radical disruption that creates whole new markets because, um, uh, uh, you know, it was just easier to sell out, right, if you will, to, to, to or, or be acquired by a Facebook. Um, and so, uh, but, but the, you know, the real market creating innovations, they don't return uh, capital necessarily in five to seven years, those time horizons can be much longer in many cases, uh, even in today's modern economy with with the digital tools being what they are. And so I do think there's another aspect of this is we need to be thoughtful about sources of capital and 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 how we fund people historically who haven't had access to capital, but also with different time horizons that maybe expect the same ultimate return. Um, I'm not sure it's realistic to ask investors to, you know, to to be less return seeking, but but over longer time horizons, uh, I think would be tremendously important to 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 galvanize that, and and not just have startups, but startups that are going to become large enterprises that employ, uh, you know, thousands of people is is incredibly important. I get, you know, from the guild side of things, you know, guild is positioned to really work with. Uh, those employers that have thousands and thousands of employer uh, em, em, employees, but I will say, the skills of entrepreneurship are critical uh, for those employers to to you know to be able to succeed and thrive. And so it's not 
it, it's not the case that everyone needs to start something, but I think those skill sets that uh, underlie it are, are incredibly important to develop in, in intentional ways. Uh, since you you brought up Clay and um, and his insight around uh, investing in uh, market creating innovations, I want um, I'm writing a blog about this on on the innovation challenges that exist in education or more broadly in in human development. It feels like yeah. we're stuck in. It's it's what uh, the 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 X Prize uh, folks think talk about as a broken market uh, uh, when there's a blockage to progress and it, it feels like we have a number of those in education and and it's in part a set of um, socio technical inventions that we need to create. By that I mean a new set of tools and a new set of protocols. Uh, for how to operate learning institutions or uh, or, or communities, and I, I wonder, as you think about your work at um, at Guild and, and your work in K twelve, mm-hmm. what are the two or three sort of invention challenges that you think need to be addressed in this decade? Yeah, well, you know, look, I, I think clear linkages of the return on investment, um, but that don't just involve shrinking the denominator, right? But, but actually, uh, can, can rethink risk, uh, and understand the long time, time, you know, the long-term opportunities that are created from taking deeper investments, um, whether that be in your human capital and workforce, uh, or in creating new companies and products, I think is tremendously important to, uh, the upskilling and employment ultimately of, of, of Americans. You know, there's a lot of folks out there who think that there's just going to be a jobless future and that we need universal basic income as, as, as an answer. And look, universal basic income, I think, could very well be a part of the picture. But I also think part of the hollowing out has just been this very short-term spreadsheet-minded view of, well, there's two ways to get my return up. If I reduce the denominator of expenses, right, or, or time, then all of a sudden the same numerator looks even better uh, in terms of a, a, an ROI calculation. And being very intentional about viewing human capital, and this is from the Guild mindset, not as an expense, but in fact as an asset uh, and, and really equivalent to research and development, um, your, your investments in learning and development, I think are an, import, an incredibly important uh, keystone in unlocking a lot more in investment uh, that would spur the type of innovation that you're or invention that you're talking about. Um, and and just to be, you know, super clear about it, I uh, that sort of you know if if you start to realize that human capital in fact is an asset, not an expense, the sorts of investments in understanding the DNA of jobs and what actually leads to successful employees and how would you assess that? And then that would unlock alternative and innovative teaching and learning formats, right? A lot of the, like, we know that it's very easy to talk in generalities about the skill sets that that good employees have in certain roles. We also know from our friend Brewer Saxberg that a lot of the times the things we believe are important are, are, are in fact not as important as we as we think because of our own cognitive biases and as we get to be experts in a field. And so the investment in, in really breaking down the DNA of, of what makes for a good employee and 
understanding those skill sets in deeper ways, um, that, that those, those investments just will not be made at scale. I I don't believe unless we can really have a much deeper understanding of what return on investment, uh, looks like. What about credentialing of learning? Is that, is that critical? Yeah. And is there a, a downside to, you know, moving to credentialing every aspect of, of human capability? Yeah, well, I, it's the right question, Tom. Um, you know, so look, on the front end, I think we should be much more articulate about the skills that we have that goes deeper than just a degree, which is a blanket statement of not much, except that you had the persistence, which is not unimportant, right? But the persistence to complete an experience um, and therefore had some exposure, right, to the topics. Um and then for those institutions that are super selective, that connotes another set of things. But that's actually, that sort of thinking is what keeps a lot of marginalized communities out of jobs, out of opportunity. And so I think a lot of our belief is that if we can get more precise about what the skills are and how to measure them, you can unlock a lot of innovation and and create more affordable pathways for a lot of Americans who've been locked out of jobs because of credential requirements uh, to all of a sudden uh, be able to have access to them. And then the the second, I'll, I'll follow that with saying, like, I think this is far more possible in those fields that are highly technical in nature, um, where the skills are more readily broken down and understood, and that it'll be a lot harder as you get into more, say, service-oriented, right, or uh, uh, unstructured work. Um, you, you know, that that could remain far more open-ended, but if you talk to the folks at Minerva, you know, even they, they think you could even assess, you know, do do that sort of assessment much more deeply and, and systematically than we do today as well. So I, it, I think it remains to be seen a little bit on what the balance is. I don't think we should ever assume that the totality of human worth is 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 possible to capture in a set of assessments and, and micro credentials. But I also think we can be much more articulate than we are today, which would unlock a lot of human capital that we're leaving on the sidelines right now. On this in, invention front, I was thinking about our friend Julia Freeland Fisher this morning in her great uh, book on who you know and mm-hmm. her insights that I think have been so important and powerful about the uh, importance of helping all young people build social capital. I was thinking about it while um, I was running around this morning. Reed Hoffman, I listened to his uh, commencement speech for 2020, and he ended it mm-hmm. by talking about how important it is to leave high school and college with a social network, with a set of uh, connections that both provide insight and opportunity. Um, and I know at, at Guild, you're, you're more focused on learning and, and, and credentialing, but, but any thoughts on policies yeah. or tools that could help build um, this kind of social capital in more equitable ways? Yeah, you know, I've been struck by Julia's work that she's starting to really invest in, in terms of how do you measure the creation of social capital? And uh, under the notion that, you know, uh, as, as our friend Jeb Bush often says, you know, if, uh, you, you, you treasure what you can measure. Right. Um, and so, uh, I, am t- I'm, I'm very interested to see how that all comes out in, in sort of not from just an absolute perspective, but really a building perspective. How do we help schools intentionally build social capital? And there's no incentives right now in the ecosystem for schools to really do that outside of if we were more to longitudinally track outcomes 
at which point I think we would see very clearly that you have to build social capital as an input into those longer term outcomes, right? Like we know that I think it's something like 80% of jobs are, are not filled uh, by by job board, um, uh, you know, applica- blind applications, right? They're, they're, they're more often than not by someone you know uh, that, that unlocks opportunity. And so what that says is for people to get ahead in life and, and get into uh, good jobs, good schools, even like who, you know, is going to be tremendously important and, and you can't discount that. So I, I think the measurement work she's doing is going to be important, maybe not as a policy in its own right, but so that schools can uh, have a way of measuring and understanding and using that as a way toward uh, ultimate opportunity for individuals, I think will be incredibly important. Um as, as a starting point. And I, I think the sort of deep longitudinal uh, value measurements um, is, is incredibly important as well. And I'll, I'll tell you at Guild, you know, look at an Entangled, we incubated a nonprofit called the Education Quality Outcome Standards Board, uh, which created a set of standards for measuring learning across learning outcomes, completion, satisfaction uh, for, for graduates, placement, and, and uh, essentially a value-added um, uh, salary metric. Uh, and, and we now, w- with the separation, uh, or rather the absorption of Entangled into Guild, that nonprofit is fully separated. It's got its own pr- uh, uh, CEO now, Kristen Sharp. And at Guild, uh, you know, we have a deep conviction that understanding the value that programs impart is incredibly important. And a critical equation of that is not just the learning, but it's going to be the social capital formation. Uh, and so, uh, I, I think efforts to understand those trajectories and, and not just in a short-term way, but a long-term way that, that really illustrates a pathway um, in, into life, right, uh, is going to be in, in incredibly important to elevate uh, the importance of that work. Uh, Michael, we didn't have time uh, today to talk about the, the really complicated task of uh, reopening American uh, K-12 schools. Um, yeah. l- let's do a quick plug for your podcast. You've been doing some great podcasts with Diane Tabiner. What's that called? Where can we find it? Yeah, thanks, Tom. Uh, so it's Class Disrupted. You can find it obviously on wherever you listen to podcasts, iTunes, et cetera, but it's also on the 74, uh, the, the the media site for education policy. Uh, is is We've partnered with them for distribution. And uh, it's really just to give you the quick plug, it's for, you know, for the first time, a lot of parents across America or the, the lid has been lifted, if you will, on what schooling actually looks like. And parents are asking a lot of critical questions. Uh, and they're confused in many cases about is this really what learning should look like in this day and age. And so we're trying to take those questions as jumping off points, both to answer them directly, but also to provide a window into what schooling could be that looks a uh, much more robust, comprehensive, uh, and 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 from a growth mindset for each individual. So people uh, these days can find you at guildeducation.com and on Twitter yeah, at Michael Twitter, B. Horn. Yeah, you got it. Uh, remains my most active uh, platform for better or worse, right, Tom? Yeah, for better or for worse. <laughs> I, I try not. I try not to hit the home button because I'm afraid of. The, what's going to show up there. Uh, Michael Horn, we appreciate your work. Um, we're looking forward to the next chapter, both the platform and the story uh, that comes with it. We appreciate um, 
everything you're doing to try to extend the opportunity to people in America and around the world, uh, create more learning experiences for more people. Yeah, huge thanks and huge thanks for continuing to shed light on the bright spots of innovation in the education world, K-12, higher ed, workforce, et cetera, um, because we need to hold those exemplars up to remember there is there is good news and, and opportunity out there. So thank you. Thanks, Michael. A big thanks to Michael for joining us on today's episode. If you want to learn more from or about Michael, check out our podcast with him on his book, Choosing College. We've got it linked in the show notes and on our blog for this week's episode. That's it for today, listeners, but don't forget to hit subscribe and leave us a review before you go. We'll see you next week for a new episode. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Jessica signing off. Jessica signing off.